Welcome to the Beltline Church of Christ podcast. We're so glad you found us. Please take a second and hit the subscribe button so that you can be notified of these weekly podcasts. Most of all, we hope this podcast will help you take your next step with Jesus. If you want to know more about us, you can visit us at www.beltlinechurchofchrist.org. Here's today's lesson. If you have your Bibles, let's be opening together to Mark chapter 7. It's where we're going to spend our time today as we continue looking chronologically at the life of Jesus Christ, the most influential life that has ever walked the face of the earth without any stretch of the imagination in that one. And I'm just so glad that you are here today. Uh, we are going to look at a, a, a different kind of section of Scripture today that is uh, maybe a little more difficult for us, but uh, one that I hope will bring some good lessons out of. After Jesus, as we saw in chapter 6, miraculously fed the multitudes with five loaves and two fish, we know that the next day the crowd finds him on the other side of the Sea of Galilee and he offends them by claiming to be the bread of life. Well, word gets back to Jerusalem because remember, Jesus is ministering in Galilee. Word gets back to Jerusalem about all that Jesus has been doing. And so Jerusalem sends a contingent of men to check out this Jesus movement. These religious leaders are coming to see what this is all about. And we read about that here in the beginning of chapter 7, verse 1. It says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they said, saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes ask him, why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat with unwashed hands. Now, I don't know how you read that section of scripture, but I find this fascinating. Here's what I see. This is just me. This may not be how you read it, but I, I kind of see these, this contingent from Jerusalem. They're kind of like private investigators. They're, they're there to try to figure out what's going on with Jesus. In fact, they're trying to snap just the right picture that's going to get Jesus in trouble, that's going to stop this Jesus movement altogether. I, I see them hiding behind columns in the marketplaces and standing behind the reeds. And, and when they see his disciples take that first bite of bread without washing their hands, they think at that moment, we got him. We got, he's not following the traditions of the elders. And that's the question they ask him. Why do your guys do this? Why don't they walk according to the traditions of the elders? We caught you. We caught you red-handed. <laughs> Have you ever known someone like that? My guess is most of us at one time or another have known someone who's constantly running around looking hard to find something to fuss about, to complain about, or to accuse someone with, right? We know people like that. Maybe it's at your workplace. Unfortunately, even at church, these kind of things can happen. And it's always sad, and it's always disappointing when it does happen. And so I just want to take a, a sidebar here from what's going on in Mark chapter 7 and just say, can we not do that here? 
Uh, can, can we make a, a promise together right now? Can we, can we commit together to say, you know what, I'm not going to be that person that runs out there trying to find fault in everybody else. Instead, let me be the person that's going to find something to bless in somebody else. Let me be the person that's going to find something to encourage someone with, not to tear someone down with. Uh, can, we, can we promise to do that together? Uh, that this kind of attitude would never be here at Beltline. Oh man, I hope that we can make that commitment together today. I'm going to look for reasons to bless, not for reasons to condemn. Jesus' conflict with these religious leaders, man, it never stopped. It never stopped. They seemed to be threatened by Jesus' popularity, and they were constantly questioning his motives, and they were relentlessly attacking him, trying to catch him in his words, and as we've already seen, plotting his death. (laughs) Because you know, Washing with unclean hands is a whole lot worse than plotting someone's death. (laughs) I don't know where that voice came from. I just wanted to throw that out there. But, but do you see the hypocrisy in that? They're willing to plot his death, but they're going to throw a fit because his disciples aren't washing their hands right? Oh, it's crazy. But let's look closer at this event, this incident in the book of Mark. They're disagreeing about cleanliness laws. They're disagreeing about dietary laws, and they're disagreeing about the regulations that have to do with ritual purity. And I know that sounds so exciting, right? I, I know you're, you're, you're all locked in thinking, wow, this is going to be as great as a series on Leviticus. I, I can see it all over your faces right now. And it would be really easy to assume that there's just really nothing for us here, but that would be a mistake. I think there's something critical for us to grasp in what Jesus is saying to these religious leaders. So let's continue reading in verse 6 of Mark chapter 7. Here's what happens next. He said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as commandment, teaching as doctrine, the commandments of men. You leave the commandments of God and you hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you said, if a man tells his mother or his father, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Now, there is something important for us to see in this controversy. This controversy with the Pharisees is actually uh, pointing to something very important. If we look back to the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, chapters 1 through 6, we see Jesus ministering precisely or prominently to who? To the Jews, right? Uh, He has been on a mission to make sure that the Jews get the Gospel message, right? That's who he's reaching out to. But what's about to happen in chapter 7 and chapter 8 is Jesus is going to begin reaching out to the Gentiles. And right Right between those two ministries is this controversy that takes place here at the beginning of chapter 7. And the point I'm trying to get you to see is that the controversy here is a link. It's a link. Jesus is going to challenge the understanding of defilement, and he's going to do something even greater. He's going to assert his own power to completely replace them. Now, Jesus is not going to do away with the notion of, uh, of impurity, but he is going to redefine it. 
And that's so important for us to grasp because it is in his redefinition of impurity that he's going to render religious purity impossible to achieve all on our own. And that's the first thing I really want you to get from this section of scripture today. It's simply this. Point number one would be this. Jesus is about to, as we'll read here in just a second, he's about to declare all food clean, but no person is clean. No person is clean. This is important because Jesus is preparing us for this mission to the Gentiles, which comes next. And he is going to assign equal status to the Jew and to the Gentile alike. He's going to say, both of you, Jew and Gentile, are equally in need of Jesus' cleansing power. Here's the problem, though. The Jews don't believe that. The Jews don't believe that they are equal with the Gentiles in any possible way. They think they're dogs. They think they're less than. They see a gigantic gap between them and everyone else. But as we said a few weeks ago, Jesus sees debtors, both of which who cannot pay the debt. And so I want to pause right here, and I want to ask this question for us as a congregation this morning. What attitude do you have Toward people who may not have arrived where you are yet. What attitude do you have toward people who may not have arrived where you are yet? Are you encouraging? Are you bearing with? Are you giving grace? Are you giving mercy? Are you trying to help them grow into what God would have them be? Or are you looking down your nose at someone that just doesn't get it like you do yet? Which is it? Jesus, Jesus is going to have none of that. He, he says, no, 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 that's not who we are. Everyone, he says, is in need of what the kingdom of God offers. Here's the bottom line. What often happens is that we walk around, and if I can prove, if I can show that I am superior than someone else because of my superior beliefs or my superior actions or whatever, then I can think that I'm worthy on that assessment alone. I have the right doctrine, and because I have the right doctrine, (laughs) you don't have it yet, what's wrong with you? You must be less than, or I have the right belief in this, or I have the right belief in that. And if we look down our noses at people because we think we have it all together, that's a problem. And again, Jesus will have none of that. He says, I don't care if you have the right doctrine. If you don't have love, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Everyone, he says, is in need of what the kingdom of God offers. I hope you got a chance to listen or watch our five-minute Friday video that went out last Friday because we talked all about this thing here at the end of this section of Scripture called Corbin, and I'm not going to tackle that again right now. I hope you'll go watch that. Uh, But I will say... I want to talk about these cleanliness laws. Now, the laws that we're going to talk about are actually laws that God gave, not the man-made laws like Corbin. Uh, But I want to get to what Jesus said, not what the men said. See, according to cleanliness laws, if you touched a dead animal or a dead human being, if you had an infectious skin disease, if you came in contact with mildew, if you had any kind of bodily discharge, if you ate meat from an animal designated as unclean, you were considered ritually impure, defiled, stained and unclean and what that meant was you were an outcast it meant you were not able to enter the temple and therefore you could not worship God together with the community if you were unclean again you were an outcast and what Jesus is going to say to us in this part of Mark chapter 7 is something so critical for us to grasp 
He's saying every one of us is an outcast. Every single one of us are outcasts. Now, you, you may... You may have less dirt on you than me. <laughs> that, that's probably pretty easy. You may have less dirt on you than I do, but we're both unclean. Now, let's go back to these, these rituals and think about this. Over the centuries, people have fasted from food during seasons of prayer. Now, why do people do that? It's commanded by God, sure, that's one reason, but it's also an aid, isn't it? It's an aid for developing a spiritual hunger for God. I neglect physical food so that I can concentrate on the spiritual food. Throughout centuries, people have knelt as they've prayed. Why? Because it's a good idea? Well, sure, but it's also because it's a posture of humility. And so people are trying to develop spiritual humility. These washings... Uh, these ceremonial things that we're talking about, they were used by people in Jesus' day as kind of the same thing. They were a visual aid that enabled them to recognize that they were spiritually and morally unclean and they couldn't enter the presence of God unless there was some kind of spiritual purification that took place. And Jesus couldn't have agreed more with the religious leaders of his day about the fact that they're all unclean before God. But where this argument gets interesting is that they absolutely disagreed about the source of that uncleanness and about how to get rid of it. They disagreed about the source and they disagreed about how to get rid of the uncleanness. That's what comes next. Look at verse 14. Matthew, excuse me, Mark chapter 7. And he called the people to him again, and he said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him? Right? Now, this is hard for some of us to accept because I think most of us believe that, that human nature is basically good. But the problem is, that's just not true. Many people believe that there are no such thing as moral absolutes in the world that we live in. And when I say the word moral absolute, what I mean is there are some people who will think that you can't really know right from wrong for certain. And when that happens... People then begin to think that we can't know about God for certain either. And you hear people say things like, well, if there is a God, I don't think he's an absolutely holy one before whom I stand guilty or condemned. As long as I do more good than bad, in the end, that'll be fine. And yet, here's the reality. No matter how much good we do, we still wrestle with these feelings of guilt and these feelings of shame. Right? And so where does that come from? I mean, we live in a world where supposedly we don't believe in sin, or at very least, we are attempting to downplay or redefine what sin is. And you say to me, well, Steve, do people really believe that? And I'm saying to you, yes, and here's how I know, because we're constantly trying to hide our true selves. We're constantly trying to hide our true selves. Or at very least, I'm trying to control what you know about me. And you're trying to control what I know about you. Secretly, we don't feel acceptable, so we try to prove ourselves and others that we are worthy and valuable and lovable. And Jesus shows us why we can't shake this sense of uncleanness. 
Look at verse 17. When he entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he says, don't you get it? Verse 19, after he says, don't you see whatever goes into a person from outside can't defile him. Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. And then it says this, thus he declared all foods clean. Now, Jesus' language is, is quite graphic here, isn't it? Whenever you eat, whether it's clean or unclean food, it goes into the mouth, down into the stomach, and literally out into the toilet. This is what Jesus is saying to us. It never gets to the heart. And so nothing that comes in from the outside is going to make us unclean. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't put anything bad in our bodies. Of course, there are things we shouldn't do that with. But the point is what comes next. Verse 20. What comes out of a person That's what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they, they defile a person. So what's really wrong with the world that we live in? Why can the world be such a miserable place? Why do relationships that all of us have tend to fall apart? And Jesus' answer to what's wrong with the world, you are. (laughs) I am. We are what's wrong with the world. Now, I don't want to burst your bubble, but uh, but all of us are the problem. It's what comes out from the heart, what comes out from inside us. It's the self-centeredness of the human heart. It's, it's, it's sin. In fact, these evils that come from the heart make us so unclean that Jesus, in a couple chapters, is going to say this. Take a look at this. Mark chapter 9, verse 43. He says, this is how bad sin is. Verse 43, Mark 9. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Tear it out. It's better. (laughs) Think about that. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and where the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire, and he goes on down that line. What is Jesus saying to us here? Sinful behavior, the reference to the hand and the foot. Sinful desires, the reference to the eye. It's like a fire that has broken out in your living room. Uh, Let's say you have a cushion on your couch that has caught on fire. (laughs) You can't just sit there and say, well, no big deal. At least the rest of the house isn't on fire, right? (laughs) That's not how it works. And if you don't do something immediately and decisively about the cushion, the whole house is going to be engulfed, right? Fire is never satisfied. It can't be allowed to smolder. It can't be confined to a corner. It's going to overtake you eventually, Jesus is saying. And that leads us to the second thing that we need to see here today. That's how sin is. Sin is the same way. It never stays in its place. And it always leads to separation with God, which results in intense suffering, first in this life and then in the one to come. That's what he's saying in Mark chapter 9. That's why he uses such drastic imagery here in verse chapter 9. There can be no compromises when it comes to sin. We must do anything we can to avoid it. If our foot causes us to sin, if our eyes get rid of them, he says. But that's not really the point. (laughs) 
Jesus has just pointed out our biggest problem. He just told us that the thing that makes us unclean, it's not our foot, it's not our eye. Our problem is our heart, right? If the problem were a foot, it's a drastic solution, but we could do something about that, right? If the problem were an eye, it's a drastic solution, but we could deal with it. Here's the problem. You can't cut out your heart. You can't cut out your heart. No matter what we do or how hard we try, external solutions don't deal with the heart. They don't get to the soul. Outside in will never work because most of what causes our problems work from the inside out. So time and time and time again, the Bible shows us that the world is not divided into good guys and bad guys. There may be better guys and worse guys, but no clear division can be made between all the good and the bad. Given our sin and self-centeredness, we all have a part in what makes this world broken. But here's what we keep trying to do, and this is what Jesus is trying to get us to wake up and see. We keep trying to address our uncleanliness, uncleanliness through external measures from the outside in, and Jesus is saying to us today, that is impossible. That model doesn't work. You're never going to feel good enough. Though you're praying and trying your very best to be good, your heart doesn't change. You're never filled with love and joy and security. You're actually more anxious because you never know if you're living up to some imaginary standard. And when something goes wrong in your life, you're immediately thrown into doubt. Well, I don't know why this happened. I thought I was living a pretty good life. Why did God let this happen? And you never find out. Why? Because religion doesn't get rid of self-justification, self-centeredness, or self-absorption at all. In fact, religion strengthens those things, and it can't change the heart. It's an outside-in approach, and it doesn't work. We're all trying to cleanse ourselves or to cover our uncleanness by doing enough good things, <laughs> but it doesn't work that way. Now, that, does that mean we shouldn't do good things? Of course not. Listen to what Jeremiah 2.22 says. Though you wash yourself with lie and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord. And the point is simply this. Outside in cannot, outside in cleansing cannot deal with the human heart. Go back to Mark 7 because there's one sentence here that is so critically important for everything we're doing. I know this is more cerebral this week. Uh, we'll get back to hopefully to some more uh, good things next week. But we got, we've got to declare the whole council, right? And so uh, look at verse 19 again. Thus he declared all food clean. Now, notice that it doesn't say Jesus said all foods were clean. If it did, then maybe the meaning would be Jesus says, don't need to worry about these things. Everything's all right. Go ahead and eat whatever you want. Jesus would be saying that the cleanliness laws were outdated and let's move beyond that. But that's not what happened. It says Jesus declared, Jesus pronounced. You say, well, what's the difference? What does that mean? What Jesus is saying to us is, as of now, I make these foods clean. I called the world into being. I called the storm to a halt. I called the little girl back from death. And now I called these foods clean. Jesus is not saying, I'm abolishing this. We've gotten beyond this now. What he is saying is that the cleanliness laws have been fulfilled. That their purpose to get you 
issue to move towards spiritual purification has been carried out. And the reason you don't follow them the way that you once did is because they are fulfilled in me, Jesus says. But it's not just that. Do you see what's going on here? Jesus is offering Jesus is offering a cure for the problem of the heart. He's offering us a cure. He's offering an inside-out solution rather than an outside-in solution. Jesus is making clear, Jesus, Jesus is making clear that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is the solution. And you say, well, what does that even mean? Uh, let me try to explain it this way. At least partially, God gave these purity laws. Why? So that his people would be different, right? He wanted them to stand apart and be set apart, right? These regulations were a way for God's people to say to all of those cultural forces that were out there, to all the people out there, we're Jews, we're followers of the Almighty God, we are different, we're not living the same way that you live. But here's what the kingdom of God is going to do. Are you with me? Because this is really important. Here's what the kingdom of God is going to do. The kingdom of God, as we're going to look at it in chapter 7 and chapter 8, is going to fling the doors of the kingdom open to everyone, right? To anyone who would repent and believe, the door is now open. Not just to Jews, but to anyone. And Jesus is saying it would be their belief. It would be their love, and it would be their obedience to Jesus and his kingdom that's going to make them different. Not what they ate. Not how they washed their hands before they ate. See, none of the, all of those regulations have zero value in the kingdom of God. Why? Because it's their belief, their love, and their obedience to Jesus that makes the difference. It's not about washed hands or unwashed hands. It's about washed hearts. And only Jesus, only Jesus offers us a washed heart. That comment, all foods are clean, man, is so important. He's saying the old Jewish laws about clean and unclean food, laws which divided Jew from Gentile, they're no longer relevant. Why? Because Jesus came to tear down the walls that divide us. Do you think he's still doing that today? Of course he is. He came to tear down the walls that divide. But it's not just that. And this is the heart of this. It's Jesus' way of saying all of these things, all of these things that you're doing, none of them get to the heart None of them get to the real human problem. But the kingdom of God does. <laughs> the kingdom of God, God does. So here's the point. The scriptures that we hold in front of us, the Jewish scriptures, they're not just to be seen as some timeless code of behavior. No, they are the story that leads us to Jesus, who can take care of our problems. And the sooner that we stop seeing it as some kind of check mark that I have to follow in order to be right with God, and the sooner that I begin to see that it's about Jesus, the better off everything's going to be. Now that doesn't mean that we just can set aside bits that we don't like or bits that we don't understand. Because when things are set aside, like Jesus does today it, it, in this section of Scripture, it's not because they don't matter. It's because the deeper truths to which they pointed have now arrived. So everything the Scriptures were getting at reached its peak in Jesus Christ. And from Jesus on, everything is different. Everything is different. And figure, here's the hard part. Figuring out the difference 
and still remaining loyal to Scripture, that is one of the key arts to being a Christian, not just then, but now. All right, I feel like I've lost you. Let's go back for a second. Let's finish with this. I want to I point you back to Zechariah 3. Zechariah is a prophet of God, and he is, in a vision, transported into the center of the temple where he sees Joshua, the high priest of the Lord, standing before the angel of the Lord. The temple, as you know, has three parts. There's an outer court, there's an inner court, and there's the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies was completely surrounded by a thick veil. And inside that thick veil was the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of it was the mercy seat, where the glory of God and the very presence of God appeared over that mercy seat. It was a dangerous place. In fact, in Leviticus 16, God says, if you come near the mercy seat, put a lot of incense and smoke up in the air, because that's where I'm going to appear in a cloud over it, and I don't want you to die, <laughs> basically. That's my translation of that verse. Only one person on one day of the year was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies, and that was the high priest on the Day of Atonement. And so Zechariah, in this vision in chapter 3, was experiencing a vision from the center of the temple, inside the Holy of Holies, and he sees something. He sees Joshua, the high priest, standing before the Lord on the Day of Atonement. Now, let me just tell you a little bit about what a high priest went through before they could enter into the Holy of Holies. Some scholars have said that the presentation or the preparation of the high priest before the Day of Atonement, it was extensive. In fact, it went on for about a week. About a week beforehand, the high priest was put into seclusion. He was taken from his home and into a place where he was completely alone. Why? So he didn't accidentally uh, touch or eat something unclean. And so clean food is brought to him. He'd wash his body and he would prepare his heart. And the night before the Day of Atonement, he didn't go to bed at all. He stayed up all night praying and reading God's word to purify his soul. Then on the Day of Atonement, he, didn't, he, uh, he bathed from head to toe. He dressed in pure, unstained white linen. Stay with me. There's a point to all of this, I promise. Then he went into the Holy of Holies and he offered an animal sacrifice to atone or pay the penalty for his own sin. Then he would come out of the Holy of Holies and he would be bathed from head to toe completely again. He'd be given a new white linen and he, he would go into the Holy of Holies again. This time, he would offer a sacrifice not for himself but for the priests. And then he would come out, he would completely bathe from head to toe, he'd put on a new white linen and he would go in and he would offer the sacrifice for the sins of the people. Now you need to know that all of this took place in public those who were in attendance, they watched closely. There was a thin screen, and the priest actually bathed behind it, but people were present. He was their representative before God, and they were there cheering him on. They were very concerned that everything was done properly and with purity because he was the one who represented them before God. And when the high priest went before God, there was not a speck on him. He was as pure as pure could possibly be. You need to know that in order to grasp the significance of Zechariah 3. So I said all that to say this. <sighs> Zechariah sees Joshua, the high priest, standing before the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, but Joshua's garments are completely covered in excrement. He was absolutely defiled. 
And Zechariah can't believe his eyes. How could this have happened? There is no way that the Israelite priest would have been allowed to go before God like that. And so Zechariah knows that this is a vision. It's a vision of how God views us in our own efforts trying to cleanse ourselves. In spite of all of our efforts to be pure, to be good, to be moral, to clean ourselves, God looks at our hearts and he says, filthy. All of our morality, all of our good works don't really get to the heart, the inside. And Zechariah suddenly realizes it doesn't matter what we do, we are all unfit for the presence of God. The end, you can go home now. <laughs> I mean, if we stop right there, this is the worst lesson ever, right? But that's not the point. There's more, right? There's more going on. Zechariah is getting a vision. And just as he's about to despair, he's going to throw up his arms, he's going to tear his clothes, God speaks to him, to, to, to Joshua, the high priest. And he says, take his filthy clothes off. And he says to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. And then he says, I'm going to bring my servant, the branch, and I will remove the sin of the land in a single day. It's amazing, right? What they had been doing for years, sacrifices, obeying the cleanliness laws, we could never get the sins off of ourselves. But God is saying, and this was a prophecy of Zechariah, that someday all of these sacrifices are going to end. Someday the cleanliness laws will be fulfilled. And centuries later, another Joshua shows up. Yeshua, Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua, it's the same name. And he staged his own day of atonement. One week before, Jesus began to prepare. And the night before, he didn't go to sleep either. But what happened to Jesus was the exact reverse of what happened to Joshua the high priest. Because instead of cheering him on, the people abandoned him and they denied him. But 2 Corinthians 5.21 says God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. God clothed Jesus in our filth. He clothed Jesus in our sin. He took our penalty, our punishment, so that you and I could be clean, really clean, spotlessly clean, perfectly clean. Hebrews 13 reminds us that Jesus was crucified outside of the gate where bodies are burned. He was crucified in a garbage heap, a place of absolute uncleanness, so that we might be clean. Through Jesus, we have been clothed in the costly clean garments, and it cost him his blood, and it is the only thing that can deal with the problem of our hearts. Nothing else works. So if you're trusting in something else today beside Jesus for your cleansliness, it's not going to work. If you're trusting in anything but Jesus for your salvation, it's not going to work. The only thing that cleanses the heart is Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the holy one, the clean one who became dirty so that we could be clean. And until we get that, oh, until we understand that, we're going to drive ourselves crazy, thinking i got to do this and i got to do that, or God's not going to be pleased with me, I'm going to be better than this, i got to be better than them. I gotta... Stop it. Stop it. Just come to Jesus. 
He's the only one. He's the only one. You can't will your way. You can't suck it up and make it happen. No, only Jesus. Only Jesus can cleanse the heart. I guess the question that's left to be answered is, do you really want to be clean? Because his cleanliness is available to everyone. Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. Black, white, doesn't matter. Purple, green, doesn't matter. What matters is Jesus. I don't know about you, but someone willing to go to that length for me, I want to give my life to that. I want to follow him. I want to be his. And if you want to do that today, man, we stand ready to help you. Whether that's obeying the gospel for the first time or just praying for that sin to be removed and those garments to be put on you, man, there's nothing like being clean in the eyes of God. And you can have that cleanliness today. It's still open to anyone and everyone who will but come to Jesus, the source of our, cleanli- clean- of our cleansing. Thanks again for listening. If you are in North Alabama, we would love to have you visit and worship with us. Also, if this lesson blessed you today, don't forget to hit the share button and share this message with someone else. Hope you will join us again next week. As we close, here is our prayer for you. I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Have a great week.